0: morning church he is risen if you don't know what you're supposed to do there you're supposed to say he is risen indeed let's try that again he is risen risen amen amen uh we got some good news to share with you this morning here it is you ready it goes like this jesus christ is the crescendo of all creation and his resurrection is the crescendo of the crescendo it's the summit of everything The peak of the gradual increase, they call it music, climax. That part of the song that of most great pieces of music you recognize and you go, oh, oh, that's it. That's the one. You usually know the opening, right, to a song, one of your favorites. That's what makes you turn the volume up a little better. But the reason you stick around is for the crescendo. that That little summit of the song that makes your jaw hit the floor, it makes you stand in awe of what they were able to do with that piece of music. Now ironically, throughout history, crescendos have never been particularly the favorite of the critics. As is typical of many great things, critics are there to ruin it, discourage people, say something that's awesome is not good. So let me just rattle off some greatest hits of the critics when some of the greatest symphonies ever written uh, came out. Here were some of the reviews of the critics. Beethoven, his Ninth Symphony, which was, most is considered one of the best, if not, it's in the top two greatest symphonies ever written, it was said, it's a frightful period indeed, which puts the muscles and lungs of the band and the patience of the audience to severe trial. Brahms' Requiem, George Bernard Shaw said of it, it is execrably and ponderously dull. Among the other top ten symphonies and crescendos out there, These things were said, constant nebulosity, monotonous, unbearable, and moribund, which is a great word. We need to bring moribund back. It will leave no great trace upon the history of our lyric theater, far too complex, far too busy, dark and dingy. Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto, like the first pancake, is a flop, they said, In the Hall of the Mountain King, which you may remember that that song, it was said, it absolutely reeks of cow pies, (laughs) exaggerated Norwegian nationalism and trollish self-satisfaction. Of Wagner, the famous composer, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche asked, is Wagner a human being at all? Is he not rather a disease? He contaminates everything he touches. He has made music sick. I postulate this viewpoint. Wagner's art is diseased. And so, I'm just picturing Wagner, I don't know if they had newspapers back then or not, but opening it up and reading what he said, I guess he did, because I know when Nietzsche was around. And he was just as wrong about Jesus, Nietzsche. He was wrong about Wagner, and he was wrong about Jesus. He was wrong about Christianity, which he thought was a religion for wimps he called it a religion for weaklings to be precise somehow he looked at jesus christ his life and his ministry and somebody who's willing to be crucified for what he's teaching as a weakling and his followers that would come after him over and over going to their death suffering being persecuted being made fun of being heckled for what they believed i guess that's weakling see the scripture sees it differently it sees that in that moment in those times where we're willing to suffer and persevere that the glory of god is right around the corner preparing to take us from death to life take us from brokenness to wholeness jesus is the crescendo of creation the crescendo of right here right now the crescendo of eternity. And this morning, I'm going to give you a couple of things to just think about, because this is a time when people show up to church, and if they're being honest, they often go, yeah, you know, this is great. and I, I, It's something I, I really hope happened, but I'm not 100% sure happened. I'm not, I'm not here to try and answer all of your questions right away, but I want to give you a couple of things to think about, maybe as you go about those kinds of thoughts, if that's where you are. The rest of us maybe are in here and we're like, you know what, I've, I've received that by faith my entire life. And so I've never really had any struggle with that. Well, then may this encourage your faith. Just a couple of things, testimony and transformation. I want us to take a look at how the resurrection of Jesus impacts both of those things. Let's start with the testimony, the eyewitness testimony. You saw some of it there in the scripture that was put on the screen, but there are several witnesses to the death of Jesus. They're named very specifically in the text. The gospel of mark and places like that that were around well in advance of when those people would have gone on to their greater reward they were still alive so if they wanted to go find them and check out the story they obviously could have one of the interesting arguments has always been uh, from people that think the way that celsus did celsus was a greek philosopher one of the early intellectual opponents of christianity and celsus thought that one of the great proofs of uh, against christianity was the fact that the resurrection first appeared on the lips of women. Celsus was not a big fan of women. Now, we're in 21st century San Diego here, so I'm going to quote Celsus. Don't get mad at me. Don't go to Twitter and say, This is what the pastor said this morning. No, this is Celsus, second century Greek philosopher. He says, How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? That's what he said about Mary going and saying, Hey, he's risen, he's not there because that's how they saw them. And he thought that that was actually proof that Christianity must have been bogus because of the way and the time in which they lived. Women were not viewed as the most credible witnesses. It would be like in today's world maybe saying, hey, if you don't believe me, go to the drug clinic down there and ask that guy. Hey, if you don't believe me, go find somebody that, you know, down there that just got out of rehab or just got out of whatever where it would call into question, okay, did they really see it or not? Can I really trust him or not? You see that guy selling stuff out of the back of his car over there? Go ask him, he'll tell you. So Celsus thinks that he's bolstering the case when in reality, think about this. I just, something to think about. If you were going to make something up and you wanted people to believe it, would you have put it on the mouth of a woman? Probably not. You probably would have made it up and said, hey, this this great philosopher said this. You wouldn't have gone to a, and every day, average, maybe poor, maybe not, average woman in a society where women were marginalized, where the testimony of women was never given much credence. Do you see what that means? That if Mark and the Christians were making up these stories to get this, this new movement off the ground, they never would have written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' empty tomb. The only possible reason for their presence in the story would be if they actually saw it. And he's saying, this is what actually happened. There was a woman there at the empty tomb. Her name was Mary. And he goes ahead and and just says what it is. I mean, think about how preposterous it it is to think of somebody like the Apostle Paul, a Pharisee, a biblical scholar, if you will, somebody who has spent most of his life haranguing Christians, helping kill them, persecuting them to the fullest extent. In fact, in the book of Acts, when Stephen is stoned to death by the masses, there's somebody there handling the coat, young guy named Saul. Okay, well, later on, he spends his time doing that. He's not a dumb guy. He's a smart guy. He's a biblical scholar. He understands Christianity to be complete blasphemy. But one day, he's on his horse, I guess, going down the Damascus Road, and there he encounters the risen Christ with a light so bright it blinds him. And he goes, who, who are you? And he identifies himself as Jesus, the risen Lord. And so Paul, from that moment forward, changes his complete orientation and spends the rest of his life suffering so that he can go preach the message of Jesus. Now, is it possible that he just thought, you know what, I'm going to trade in this place of honor that I've got among the Pharisees of the day. He's a poster kid for the Pharisees of the day. Maybe I'll trade that in for a life of shipwreck Being on the road, being beaten, being whipped, and eventually losing his head. He was beheaded eventually by an emperor, as were many of the followers of Jesus. Is it possible? Sure it's possible. Does it make any sense? No, not to me. It doesn't. See, there were a number of messianic pretenders of the day. Bar Kokhba is one. And they'd ride on the scene, and they'd all pretend to be the Messiah, and then the Romans would crucify him, and then the the little movement would disseminate. It would go away. Christianity didn't it exploded why that one and not the others well one possible reason would be that Jesus didn't stay dead and the others did so when he shows up he appears to hundreds of people they're named some of them very explicitly in the Bible they would have been alive at the time that the Gospel of Mark is written as though and in fact it's so specific and so frequent, you almost get the sense that he wants you to go check it out. Like, like he's putting footnotes in his story because he wants to cite that these people are actually alive and this is who saw it, this is who saw it. Oh yeah, and don't forget, they saw it and she saw it and he saw it. Joseph of Arimathea, he was there. He's the one who offered the tomb for the crucified Christ and on and on. Oh, and there was a centurion. Now don't forget Pontius Pilate was there and don't forget all of these things, right? Well, maybe it helps us. Maybe it helps us. But the resurrection changed the direction of the followers of Jesus' life in revolutionary ways. Why did the rest of the movements just kind of fizzle out? Because none of the others got up again. None of the others left the tomb empty and appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses before they ascended. The Japanese novelist Shusaku Endo wrote that if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're still forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. I mean, something happened to transform the entire movement of the followers of Jesus. So if it's not the resurrection, something else had to have happened there to actually dramatic, why were they willing to die for the cause? Why would Paul, this respected Pharisee, stop persecuting Christians on a dime, completely reverse his course, and spend the rest of his life preaching Christ because something happened to him. And the only plausible explanation is that they saw him. They saw the resurrected Lord. It wasn't just them. And people ever since have believed and put their faith in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In fact, it's no exaggeration to say that the vast majority of great thinkers throughout history have actually done that. Let me give you a short list, okay? These are smart people, they're not dumb people, not hallucinators, they're not. Francis Bacon, Copernicus, Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, Louis Pasteur, Bach, Tolkien, Michelangelo, Dostoevsky, C.S. Lewis, Chaucer, Handel, T.S. Lewis, T.S. Eliot, Rembrandt, Galileo, Kepler, unless we think that, yeah, but those are all from long ago. Even right now, Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, is a devout christian his landmark book is called the language of god a scientist presents evidence for belief what i'm trying to say to you sisters and brothers is that the resurrection is always going to be something that's received by faith but you are not crazy to believe it there is evidence that's very strong for it and the brain and the heart need not be divorced from one another they can go together believing in the resurrection of jesus is a matter of faith, but it is also reasonable. In fact, it's most reasonable. Not only does history point out that so many of the leading intellectuals found the resurrection true, so have so many, many everyday people. I guess, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, there's no Hall of Fame that's gonna have Tim Spivey in it. And that's who Jesus spent most of his time with. People like us like the guy in john nine you remember he was born blind man born completely blind jesus heals him says let there be light and there was light in his eyes you could see again of course this sends everybody into panic because i mean you know you've seen people I mean, you may know people around town or in your family that that have different kinds of special needs and if one day they just came in and they didn't have the problem anymore you'd be curious as to what exactly took place and so Here he is, he's walking around town, and all the townspeople are like, hey, you know, we'll call him uh, Ted, all right? What happened to Ted? He's walking around, look at him. What happened to his eyesight? They go to Ted, they ask for an explanation, and Ted says, you know, I don't know, there's a guy, and he came up to me, and he said, hey, do you you want me to heal you? And I said, yeah, sure, that'd be great, and he he healed me. They go, what was his name? I'm not sure. And then they point out, of course, in the great, pharisaical tradition of stupidity, they point out the fact that he had healed him on the Sabbath. It was a Sabbath day. So whoever he was, he was a sinner. They take him, they take him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, of course, first thing they notice is that he healed somebody on the Sabbath, and they go, who was this guy? And he says, I don't know. What I do know is that I was blind, and now I see. That's what I know. Well, he was obviously a sinner. What was his name? And so they go to his parents, and his parents are kind of you know hey <laughs> and, and a great passage about uh, how parents can chicken out at times they go hey he's of age ask him <laughs> Hey, I, hey don't ask us man he's old enough ask him they go but we can verify the fact that he was blind and now he can see ever since we've known him he's been blind so they go back to the man who now can see and they go hey so who was this sinner that did it and he says I don't know if he was a sinner or not But I do know this I once was blind I once was blind but now I see and along with him this long history for 2,000 years both scholars and simpletons intellectual titans and everyday people the poor and the rich and the smart and the not so smart all of them have had their lives changed and they look at Jesus and some of us the best we can do is say you know what I don't know how he did it but I do know this and this Easter is the day we say this you know what he once was dead and now he's not and that's what the followers of Jesus that was their story it, it was I once was blind now I can see undeniable fact and for them it was you know what I don't know a whole lot about this guy uh, I do know this I do know that he was he was dead and, and, and now he's not he was dead and now he's not. Dead? Not. Dead and not, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty amazing proof that something special took place. Jesus was dead and now he's not. And in the same way, what the Bible tells us over and over again is that that's the, that's the story. I was blind, now I see. I was dead, now I'm alive. I was broken, and now I've been made whole. I was a sinner, and now I'm trying, I've, I've committed my life to Jesus, and I'm committed to changing. I used to be this way, but now I'm that way. Well, can you prove that that was a. Well, you know what? Probably not, but I can tell you this. I was this way, now I'm this way. I was blind, and now I'm not. And it hinges on that one story. He was dead. And now he's not. Now, I know that sounds so simple, but it's so profound, isn't it? I mean, I can even look around the room. I can only see about the first you know, five rows of you because of the spots, but I can, I can look at the people sitting in the first five rows. And I know some of your stories, and I know how God broke into your life and changed it. And if I, if I had you up on stage and I gave you a microphone and I said, give us your story of dead, now I'm not. What were you and who are you now? How did God change your life? You could get up here and you could say something that you know to be true. I was this way. I used to mouth off and hate my parents' guts, and now I don't. I used to, I used to go around robbing and stealing from people, and now I'm honest. I once was this way, and now I'm that way. I once was dead, and now I'm not. I once was blind, but now I see. That's the That's the Christian story. And it's rooted right here on Easter Sunday in the empty tomb. See, if he doesn't get up again, then that story changes, Paul says. He goes, no, no, no. If he doesn't, isn't raised again, then there really is no eternal life. There's no resurrection for us. You're still in your sins. Your faith is futile. But what Easter says is, no, no, no. He was dead. Now he's not. And that means that we were dead, and now we're not. even today like the great symphonies of old god's masterpiece of redemption its movements from creation to the fall from the fall to redemption from redemption to resurrection to resurrection to the return of jesus those are still those movements are still panned by those critics who are perishing but to those of us who believed we hear its majesty we recognize that one simple fact that the crescendo of Jesus' resurrection makes this piece of music unlike any other in its beauty and its impact. So if it's true, what does that mean? No well, means a lot. It means death, pain, evil. They've all been given their notice. They're about to expire their day of terrorizing God's people is over. It means that for everybody gathered here and anybody who would call on the name of Jesus, that the opportunity to live a new life, for the old to go away and the new to be born, to become a new creation, to be raised from the grave in their own way. That's how the Bible talks about it, baptism. It's like a death and a burial and a resurrection. The old Tim goes away, the new Tim is raised to new life. So you can imagine this morning I'm outside in the front and uh, a, a young couple comes up and says, Hey, we've been talking. We want to get baptized. Yes. I'm telling you what. You know why? Because when you see people that God has put it on their heart to say, You know what? I want to make that concrete, conscious decision. I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. You know what that means? That means you might have been dead. Now you're not. Nor will you be again. Nor will you be again. You are sitting in the midst of, sisters and brothers, today, if you look to your left, you look to your right, you are going to be sitting next to a person who's resurrected, who has been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection is true, Jesus still raises the dead to life. He's not dead. So when we take communion like we did earlier, we're not remembering some guy that lived in the past. It's not like George Washington or somebody like that. Jesus is somebody who's still alive and working. And as I read earlier from Romans 8, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead when you become a Christian now lives here lives in you the same Holy Spirit that, trans, that raised him from the grave is now yours in Jesus Christ our, our church has preached that since day one on Thursday of this week we turned eight years old as a church do we look eight We're eight years old uh, I had an eight year old until about two weeks ago and uh, she's feisty let's put it that way we're a feisty church here at MVC. I'll tell you what has never changed. We've never stopped preaching that. Not one time. And I walked in on our eighth anniversary, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say this. I want you to finish this. Don't judge me before you hear the end, okay? But I walked in, and I saw this. This is on my desk. This is the cover of Magazine. That's our church on the front on our eighth anniversary. It's kind of heady stuff, right? You, you go, wow. What an honor, you know? And I go so I had that moment of excitement and then kind of pensiveness and then kind of started feeling kind of aw shucks about it and you know what I did then I kind of went in one of those old preacher trances where you, you start daydreaming start going down memory lane you know and I'm going back to To day one. And then I go to the first Easter, first Easter we had at New Vintage in 2011. We combined with another church that day and barely cracked 100 people. Um, And I remember um, baptizing my daughter Anna and baptizing my daughter Olivia. And I remember baptizing a a young father who had lost his um, baby, a newborn baby. And uh, one of those moments that I'll never forget is being in a, in a hospital where literally next door to each other, two families, same church, what are the chances of this? And in one room, they, were give, they had just given birth, and in the other, their newborn baby had just passed away, and they're in the hospital room at the same time, right next to each other. And I'm there as the pastor, moving from room to room. Yay. I can't imagine... Praying here for joy, praying here in sorrow. And never losing hope. Never losing hope that the parents who'd lost a baby would see it again. And however long this life lasted, that it would be lived for Christ. I remember another baptism where we had a Navy SEAL in the church and he threw. One of our, She was in a wheelchair, cerebral palsy. He throws her up over her shoulder. She brings her baby doll into the baptistry because she wants her baby doll to be a Christian too. So we put it in and we baptize her and her whole family into Jesus. And I remember standing in the ocean in the middle of the summer amongst, amongst all the hippies of Encinitas and letting them all stop when they're surfing and they're boogie boarding and baptizing entire families into Jesus. And I think about how good God has been you go stuff like this only matters if there's new life happening see the church is supposed to be the place the outpost where the new life takes place we're we're, we're the place where we teach people how to die It may sound a little morbid okay but we teach people how to die so that they can live we take people who think they're living and help them understand how dead they are until christ makes them alive and i want you to hear this morning sisters and brothers that whatever you are in your personal life okay you might think that you're alive and you're actually dead and if that's the case Jesus Christ wants to make you alive. If you've already died and you've been raised to a new life in Jesus, the old self is gone, the new is here, then take heart this morning and rejoice that Jesus has done a great thing in your life. And if you're here this morning and that's something you want to have happen, I'm telling you right now, we got a, a baptism party that's getting ready to happen fairly soon. The Bible talks about it as a place you clothe yourself with Christ. And if that's something you're interested in, okay, come find me. You'll have an opportunity to respond on a card later. And we will take as many people as want to call on the name of Jesus and give their life to him in Jesus, in baptism. And we will, we're going to the ocean, so there's plenty of room, okay? And the, the people at Moonlight Beach are used to us by now. I like, go, oh, here come the people in all the shirts again. And we'll go out there, and we'll start a new life. But don't let the moment pass. If you feel God tugging at your heartstrings, don't let the moment pass. Talk to somebody. When we pray here in just a moment, and then when we stand and we sing, I want you to hear the voices of the church celebrating what God has done in their life. Talking about when God called their name and they ran out of the grave. What an odd sound and song when you just look at the lyrics. But when you understand this, it's beautiful. And so this morning, I invite you out of the tomb. If you've never been in the tomb, you've got to go through the tomb first. It means I say, hey, I'm, I'm willing to die to myself. I'm willing for the old Tim to go away. I want the new Tim to be raised, and I want to spend the rest of my life saying, not my will, but yours be done, and conforming myself into the image of Jesus. No other person on this earth. the image of Christ. So in just a moment, I'd like us to pray. And whatever your spiritual need might be, it might be that you want to pray for somebody who's not here, that you want to invite God to break into their life in a powerful way. But whatever God lays on your heart, let's go to him and pray.